0: providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. So Ryan said that the reason I'm here is not because of Walker and Dunlop, but because of the webcast. I will tell you this, the webcast didn't pay for me to get here. (laughs) There aren't that many conferences going on in Las Vegas right now. I wanted to get a sense, Bill, as it relates to the economics of Vegas are humming right now, and yet... The traditional way you filled up your hotels, filled up your casinos, is not happening today the way it did two years ago in 2019. Could you
1: talk about that for a moment? So you're coming from Chicago, you're coming from New York, you're coming from L.A., you're coming from San Francisco. God bless you, please come. Okay. And, and so what the weekends are going to be coming, we saw it with the NHL. When a Canadian team comes on a Tuesday night, there's 18,000 fans in there and seven or 8,000 of them are from Canada. I mean, it is the environment's unique and rich here. It's very diverse. Home teams don't quite have the home field advantage. Right. <laughs> but I think from an economic perspective, you know, we own everything south end of the Strip. MGM Resorts owns literally where you're sitting today all the way down to Mandalay Bay and everything in between. And so 65% of the folks who have initially gone to events there have walked because parking its just simpler to walk. And so it's, it's going to be and is a huge economic motivator for the community and, frankly, for the company. And MGM, well, on Monday night, we will all see MGM all over
0: Allegiant Stadium. Yeah. You're one of the founding partners in that effort. And you have a VIP area in the new stadium. I was curious, is, are, is it VIPs who live in Las Vegas or VIPs who are in your resorts who are coming?
1: If there's a Las Vegas employee in there, which generally would be one of my hosts, that'll be the extent of it. It is the largest professional sports box in... Uh, it's the largest box in professional sports. We took a whole quadrant. We took six suites and combined them into one. If anyone's been to Texas Stadium, you've seen the President's Club. We kind of replicated that idea. It's 220-odd people can be in it. There's 116 organized seats, buffet, bar, televised. it, it it's, a, it's an epicenter. And it's positioned in such a way where not only for football, but particularly events, the stage is on that end of the thing. And so we took that over... We've got an owner's suite for another 34-odd odd customers. And we have, under our direct control, about 750 seats for any given game. And, you know, investment, almost 95% of those will be given away as comps to, to promote and, and advocate for customers to come out. But it won't be locals. It'll all be visitors.
0: How much has the building of T-Mobile Arena and now the football stadium changed the dynamics of the assets you own as it relates to entertainment? So previously, a boxing match would happen with 10,000 people? yeah roughly around 10,000 yeah. people now you've got a venue of 20,000 people and another one of 80 65 growing to 75 yeah. and so as it relates to all those previous events before you had these two stadiums built would happen if you will on property and now they're sort of off property but you're owner of those off property what's the how have you have you repurposed the actual old stadium space into new things or is it still out there for smaller it's venues
1: still out there for smaller venues yeah. interestingly the arena at mandalay is tied to a 2000000 square foot convention center. The, The convention facility at Mandalay is the fifth or sixth largest in the country. And the economic purpose of that arena isn't to do entertainment. It's to host, obviously, we don't get Bill Gates' crowd yet, but to put Bill Gates in there with his team, Microsoft, Home Depot, and other corporate entities have gone in there. And so it levers and serves as a huge platform and a place for people to come in and listen to speakers. Then it doubles as a venue for entertainment. MGM, a little different. It serves the same purpose, obviously, but it's been the home of champions for UFC and for for boxing uh, and larger-scale concerts. There isn't a band in the world that hasn't gone through the MGM Grand Garden. Now, here's a good example. The Rolling Stones used to always go there. The Rolling Stones are now going to be at the arena. Okay, that's fine. We still have access to anything and everything we need, and it's literally in our backyard. And we own nine properties in the Las Vegas Strip, so it's not like, is it better economically per seat that they be in your venue? Of course it is. But at that scale and the general gist of lifting the, the the tide, we're pretty excited by all of it. You've been
0: here for your whole professional career. Came out to UNLV. What was it that brought you here to start with? Was it were you a gambler? No, no. I was <laughs> no. I was
1: 19. I was uh, in for Connecticut. many of this, in the room that doesn't eliminate <laughs> that. <laughs> but anyway, That's good point. That's a fair yeah. comment. I was in Connecticut at the time, and some of you may recall this. You could uh, legal age was 18. So I tended bar one summer and said, well, this is fun. I like this industry. And so then I started working in a hotel and I was going to school for general nothing. <laughs> and I said, well, this is ridiculous. I need to focus. And literally as fate has it sometimes in life and luck has been with me the whole time. My professor's college roommate was the Dean of the UNLV hotel college and fate have it, I ended up on an airplane. I ended up coming down here with three of my buddies They've now subsequently left. I've been here now 44 years. <laughs> but, and look, at the time, a different industry. I mean, literally, the mafia was still here in some way, shape, or form. At least their money was, not their presence in terms of pension programming and other things. But it wasn't a very organized organization. I happened to work for Hilton, which had organized management programs, development programs. And I spent the first four or five years there developing that. And then I went off to work for this guy named Steve Wynn, who is probably one of the greatest visionary entrepreneurs this city's ever had hence the opening of the mirage and some other things that we're able to do
0: talk about kirk akorian and and steve as it relates to visions for for las vegas clearly the mgm brand is now the largest brand and a lot of the assets that steve built are now part of what you now run but clearly two luminaries in this town people who set a vision for what vegas ought to be and you have watched it grow talk about you know, the two of them and their influence on this town or more more specifically Kirk and, and what yeah. he did with MGM.
1: Mr. K was you know, Mr. K was the founder of it's it's now the Westgate, but it was the, originally the International, became the Las Vegas Hilton. That was his project. He brought Barbra Streisand and Elvis Presley here. He was the first to do mainstream large scale entertainment. He was a quiet owner. You know, he owned 58% of the company when he was in charge of MGM. So quiet as that can be but he was very quiet he didn't get involved in the day-to-day he had a broader vision about what was to be accomplished and got completely out of the way but he you know he had great expression he goes i want you to become like an alligator and when the time to strike is ripe you go out and you strike and i was working for caesars they hired me because i grew up in the wind organization all i wanted to know was how we're going to buy steve Win's company right and the moment I got there was a meeting with him. Literally, like the first meeting I had was a meeting with Kirk Koryan, So tell me all about this organization. And the moment happened, and he struck. And that's just the way he operated. Fascinating times. The environment was completely different. He obviously suffered through the MGM fire, which was a tragedy. It was now Bally's rebuilt the MGM in its current place. And then we kind of went off to the races in 2000 when we bought what was Mirage Resorts, Steve Wynn's Enterprise, and then subsequently Mandalay Bay, and now we've grown some of our own assets, the, the asset you're sitting in here today, and some other things, both domestically and internationally. But he was a quiet, resourceful, humble, humble man. And it's the first time I ever met him, it's a true story. So, you know, these jobs are pretty robust. you got to watch your ego, because it will take you out of the rural world you should be in. Kirk Akor used to fly in his then BBJ. I him I'm walking through the casino, and I see a line of about 50 people to go into the buffet, and about 14 people back or so, because I eventually counted them. There's what I think is Mr. Kerkorian. I said, no, we can't be standing in line. I go over to him. Mr. Kerkorian? He goes, yeah. I go, I'm Bill Hornbuckle. He goes, oh, yeah, you're the new guy. I want to meet with you. So bottom line is, I said, Mr. Kerkorian, why don't you – I mean, what are you doing? He goes, no, I'm going to wait in line. And I stood there for 25 minutes while he got to the front of the line, and then he paid cash. That was Kirk Kakorin. He just – he viewed this – in a completely different environment. He had a different perspective to all of it. Very humble, great man. Steve, amazing visionary for what this place could become. He was fueled by, at the time, milk and money. We, we all understand, at least most of us understand that story in this room, I'm sure, as bankers. And we created something that was spectacular. The, the Mirage, it, uh, Caesar's Palace, which by far was the biggest place in town, it took a quarter of a million dollars a day to run it. Mirage was a million dollars a day. So brass cojones. And they paid off and and the the fickleness of it all, if it wasn't for one Japanese customer, that place might not have gotten through the first year. You mentioned that if it weren't for one Japanese customer,
0: it might not have made it. I actually had dinner last night with a friend of mine who's a money manager at, at Janus funds. He runs a mutual fund, and he said that he used to invest in the casino sector, and he said, "I used to be an investor, and quarters would be made or lost." Depending on one big whale either coming in and winning a lot or losing a lot, I'm assuming we're now well beyond that in scale.
1: When they first opened the MGM, it was they ran into horrific luck. A couple of customers came in and beat them out of 25 million in two quarters in a row, and that was also tenuous. But the scale now is very difficult to overcome for any you know anyone.
0: And as it relates to the the the, the big rollers who come in here. You all do a, an exceptional job of, if you will, target marketing them and making sure that they know that anytime they want to come here, they can come. Just for us, as far as a global list, how many are on that? Is there is that a group of 200 people? Is it a group of 2,000 people? How big is that it's,
1: it's Depending on where you want to draw the lines in the thousands?
0: It's in the thousands, in the
1: thousands. Look, international play is massive. It's kind of interesting statistic. Of our rated play, that means you catch our attention enough through either the Life card or through a host. 50% of it comes from 1% of the customers. So think about your business when 50% comes from 1% of the customers. 65 comes from 4%. And so we all talk about personalization in our business, and yet we all try to do it digitally and through a bunch of marketing programs and try to get smart about data. In that scheme... Johnny owns the relationship and Johnny better know when the kid's birthday is and when the wife's anniversary and et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a real direct bond and relationship we form with our customers. You know, I mean, a lot of our customers, a lot of our employees travel to places as far away as Thailand to go to a gentleman's birthday party. And that's just what we do at the right level. That's customer service. Yeah.
0: No, it's fascinating. So on the customer service side, Bill, uh, you know, one of the things that I was so impressed with was when you were named CEO. The first thing you talked about was the employees of MGM. And in your last quarterly earnings call, even though you had gangbuster earnings, you didn't get right to how profitable it was and that this resort and this community is back. You got to your people. Having grown up in the business, you really understand that it's the people in this community and the people of MGM that actually make this go. And while you have beautiful buildings around you, and I want to talk in a moment about the beautiful buildings, but... You've gone down, you went down to 12,000 employees. What have you built it back up to? And how difficult has it been to hire people as
1: volumes have come back? So I'll personalize it. Go back to my 18-year-old bartender. When I came to Vegas at 21, I couldn't be a bartender. I started as a busboy because that's what I could do. I needed the money to go to school, started as a busboy. And I literally have had 100 jobs and at that level on through. And so I truly understand what it takes to make one of these things run and operate And it takes staff, it takes people, it takes passion, it takes fun, it takes dedication. And as much as we help provide the environment, we don't provide the experience, meaning senior management. And so the folks in this room are the folks who do that every day, who have direct contact. And so we need a great deal of respect for them. I think our organization has thrived on it. I want to do more of it. I want to be customer-centric. I want to be employee-centric. You know, corporations at scale get out of whack, and, and I still grew up in this environment where when it was Kirk Kerkorian, and Steve Wynn, Bill Bennett, pick your favorite icon for our industry, you all have icons in your industry, when they walked in the room it mattered and people paid attention versus a corporate drone. And even our scale, we're trying not to be that corporate drone. We're trying to be personal. We're trying to be engaged and influential and help people get through what has been. Las Vegas has had its share of ups and downs. Everything from we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. That impacted us in a significant way. A couple of years ago, we had our tragedy at our village site, as you all know. Now the pandemic. These are our neighbors, our friends, our colleagues for decades And so, making sure we do the best we can to take care of them is important. We don't always get it right. (laughs) We don't always do the best thing, but we know we try, and we want to keep them present. And that's purposeful that we say things like that in advance, and hopefully meaningful. And and so far, it has been. I want to see us shift more now into customer centricity, particularly at the higher end of our business. Culture of yes, like you know the infamous yes. Now, what's your question? Yeah. You know, when you get to scale, it's hard to do that. When you have and the answer to your question is we now have fifty five thousand employees. Wow. We don't have enough. Irrespective of politics, a lot of the social network will begin to fall off in this state and many of the jurisdictions we're in starting right now through the end of the month. But right now I could hire five, fifty, five hundred more employees today in Las Vegas to service my needs. And I can't get them back. And so you're trying to be employer of choice, all those things, but it starts with and ends with people want to do for you here as part of the experience and we we cherish that we recognize that we understand it you haven't seen any i mean it's only been four days since the supplemental federal benefits
0: burned off you haven't seen any uptick in hiring in the past four days i I wouldn't expect i was just curious no we we,
1: no to the contrary surprisingly having talked to a few folks in the community like how are you thinking about help me understand how you're thinking about i don't care what you say just help me understand it and they're waiting to the end (laughs) i just find it interesting that well i got another couple weeks you are talking about economics in a couple of weeks but that's just, you know, because there's plenty of jobs in town right now. I have 5,000 openings. There's 25,000 positions tomorrow in town. You could walk up to an employment office and get hired. Yeah. And so there's just the immediacy is a challenge. And, and look, the work's not easy, particularly in this environment. You know, walking around all day as a security guard, tapping people on the shoulder, saying, hey, please put a mask on. You can imagine some of the things people would tell them. Some of them start with F. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's just, it's a, interesting, difficult time. And so we're trying to do everything we can to make it better, but it's not easy. So in your,
0: when I mentioned in your earnings script, you said people, you also talked about your customers, but you also talked about the planet. Mm -hmm. And I was interested that in that first piece, you said, we're going to invest in our people and we're going to invest in our planet. We are in Las Vegas, as I flew in an hour ago. I flew by Lake Mead, which is at historically low levels. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal Some of you may have seen it about three weeks ago, where the leak meat is so low that they have started to pull back water flows going to Arizona, and they've cut back 30% of the water going to Arizona farmers, which are, at the, if you will, at the top of the pecking order or the bottom of the pecking order. They get cut first. But in that same article, they talked about the fact that the population of Las Vegas has doubled since 2002, and yet you're using less water today in Las Vegas than you were in 2002. Can you talk about that? Because clearly, as such a big employer and such a big member of this community, you have a significant responsibility there, and you're also doing a lot on
1: it. It's interesting that the actual usage by the resort community this quarter, this three miles, is less than five or six percent, about five or six percent of the total water usage in the valley. So that's the first, that's the place to start. Second thing is almost all of the residential and hospitality water that's used ends up back in Lake Mead. Like the le- look, could we ever get the lake on in front of Bellagio again today? Probably not. Right. Having said that, other than the evaporative, that water gets—that's uh, gray water—that's coming out of your showers. And so, between internal systems and external, that the community's done, the vast majority of that water gets recycled. What is hurting us? Go back to the population. Is my lawn, your lawn? <laughs> right. It's just it landscape, particularly in Arizona and California. It's mostly used for irrigation for farming. That's the massive use of the water. But we will get to a point, and it's a ways away, where there will be no more growth if we're not careful, if we don't treat it with more respect. The other side of the coin is, in the place we could make a more immediate impact, is power. And so we just literally launched in June uh, the largest single uh, solar array by an independent hospitality company in the world. About 25 miles north of here, we have 675, 000, 675 acres full of solar. It powers We're sitting here today, 90% of this power right now is done by solar. So 90% of our daytime power is run by this solar array. We've got a large array on the, it produces 100 megawatts. We've got a large array on top of the convention center I mentioned down at Mandalay. And so we take it serious. Because a decade from now, if we can't get people to live here and move here, we're going to have a problem. And so it's important to us. This obviously we have the most influence because of our scale. In some of our other jurisdictions, it's a lot harder, but not as less important.
0: When we talk about other jurisdictions, let's move away from Vegas for a moment and talk about the rest of the U.S. and your Asian operations. In the U.S., you're in Michigan, Mississippi, Maryland, Massachusetts. I thought you had to have an M to get one of your to get one of your resorts <laughs> in as a Montana. state. but And you're also in New Jersey. Are you in those jurisdictions because you just got licenses there, or is there something particular about those states that you all said, hey, that's a great place for us to go and open up?
1: I'd, I'd love to tell you that it was strategic in the context of every location. Part of it's opportunistic, defined with strategy. So um, think about hub and spoke. We're the hub, and the spokes are our regional properties. We want to create database. We want to cre- create customer relations. We want to feed the machine. And so we do do that. And so if you go to Maryland, where National Harbor, the MGM is there, huh. great property. You can get recognized, rewarded, and ultimately come here and enjoy some of that recognition. And so we have eight regional properties. But a lot of it was opportunistic when Mississippi decided it wanted to create jobs and do it. And, and a lot of it... Uh, it's job creation. Eventually, you know, why a lot of these places existed in the regional markets is they wanted to create the jobs to begin with. And frankly, the bluer some of these states got, the more easier the legislation became to put gambling in play. We're going through this in New York right now. You know, we have Yonkers racetrack. It's a racino. It's 97 acres. We want to make into a casino and someday an integrated resort. It's, it's kind of hard to resist 15 miles outside of New York City. And so it's, it's a combination of both strategy. We don't want to be in every jurisdiction. You know, put an MGM brand on something, it's got to be meaningful. And we're not a box of slots. We, have, we want to have some meaning and some depth to these properties. But there's a few more we have keen interest in. Does online betting sort of remove the need
0: to continue to grow geographically in the United States?
1: It helps it. If there's a unique opportunity to grow geographically with brick and mortar, we'll take advantage of it. But they are very far and few between. You told me Florida, tribal. If told me California, very tribal. If you told me Texas, uh, interesting. We mean to us. Right. Every place else is either overbuilt or unlikely for in the immediate future. So we think about diversification of our company. The good news is we kind of own Las Vegas in the context of our scale. The bad news is if something bad happens in Las Vegas, we own Las Vegas. Yeah. And we've seen that happen, by the way. And so diversification comes in two forms, international, Macau, Japan, and digital. And so you've all seen, if you follow sports at all, it's kind of hard to miss the phenom called BetMGM and some of the other things with DraftKings and FanDuel. It's going to be a $30 billion business at And so we're out there. We're going to have it in 21 states fairly soon. We're up to 14 right now. We just opened Arizona today. And we'll be in with iGaming in about six states come next, next month. And you brought
0: in IAC, Barry Diller's company, as a partner in that business. Why did you feel like you had to team up with someone like IAC to build that business?
1: It's kind of interesting, Barry's group, and some of you know, it's basically an incubator for a lot of different things, all, all digitally related, everything from Match.com to you know, the home one I can't think of right now, it escapes me, but we weren't just going to sell into our digital business. And so the point was, particularly given the, uh, what happened during COVID, he saw the stock, and so he bought into the company, spent about a billion dollars at $17 a share. He's been highly rewarded for it. He's been a light of breath of fresh air on our board. You know, for a gentleman who's 79 years old, like he's the biggest visionary we have on our board and thinks about the long ball more than almost anybody else on our board, and he's 79 years old. And so it's been a great relationship for, I, I believe, them and him. Clearly, they've doubled their money and then some. And it's been great for us to get their interpretation, their input on digital. One of their participants serves, one of their board members serves on our BetMGM board as well. And their Joey Levin, who's their CEO, is also on our board. Right. And Joe's a really young, dynamic guy who understands digital space really well. And so we've been uh, uh, excited by it, motivated by it. Barry's very focused on, this is interesting, the idea that gaming, entertainment, and digital could all come together. And his theory simply is, well, who's the best entertainment-related gaming company in the world? And he picked us, and I would concur with his thesis. And I know digital well. Let's put all this together and continue to grow it. And so, you know, it's everything from live gaming that's broadcast to shows that potentially have a gaming aspect that can be digitized and broadcast. It's a fascinating idea. I think you're going to see, as we have a need for growth, like every company, we're going to push more and more into that direction. And how long until that business becomes profitable? Three or four years. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's a, we'll probably be a half a billion in with our partner in Tain in the MGM business before it, it shows profit. Because it's a growth built business right now. And it takes a customer in sports about twenty two months to mature in iGaming about sixteen. Yeah. And your cost of acquisition is almost five hundred dollars a head. So it's you know, it's meaningful. And you're now the second largest platform? We are. Headed towards number one. Yeah, well hopefully FanDuel's number one. We're number two driven by iGaming, but we're we're almost all in. And, We're all in. We're almost there. And so in your job, I was, I was thinking about Jamie
0: Foxx being the face of BetMGM and how much fun it must be to have Jamie being your spokesperson on that new line of business. And then I thought to myself, Bill's met everybody. And I was, I was uh, you know, just back in, I think it was July, you had Garth Brooks one night, Bruno Mars the next night, and you had, what's his name, Colin Montgomery here at Montgomery? Colin, the the, the USC writer. guy. Yeah, the USC guy. You had them all in here, and I can only imagine. I mean, what's it like sitting in your seat with the world's most famous people coming through here, staying at your resort? And as you said, you do have the ability to kind of float off the ground every once in a while if you don't lock yourself down. And yeah. knowing you, as I'm seeing you here today, you clearly have both feet on the ground. But what's it like meeting all these people?
1: Some of them are great, like any of your life. <laughs> And some of them are a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and those, that will remain unmentioned, which, one, <laughs> no, I'm not which going ones go on those
0: two, because we want them all coming back yeah, you, know, to right? Look,
1: look it, obviously, it's the most interesting part of it. I have always had a direct link with entertainment. Like, the entertainment boss reports directly to me, and that's the only way I want it, because I have a passion for it. I, I think it drives who and what we are. I understand the space fairly well. And it's fun. It's interesting. They're interesting, fun people. A lot of our customers are fun. If you think about the nature of a customer who was going to come in here in any given moment, gamble a couple million dollars on something. Kind of interesting people generally. And entertainers, (laughs) think about it. You know, the people gamble $400,000 a hand. We do 60 hands an hour. Start doing that math. That's an interesting person. (laughs) Same with entertainers. Uh, They come in all shapes and sizes. You know, we've all upstepped to this uh, deal where they can do resonances now. And so we've opened up the world. So we have Bruno Mars, Lady Gaga, Garth Brooks is considering one, et cetera, et cetera. It's a great place to come. Your audience comes to you. It's one of the only places in the world you don't have to tour to them. They come to you. Think about what happens here. The whole world shows up here every day, and every three days it turns over. And so I don't have to travel. They're going to come to me. And so it's a pretty easy date in that context. And the money that people will pay for ticket prices for something like Gaga or Bruno are in the mid-hundreds for average ticket prices. And so the economics are compelling as hell uh, for them and for us. Is Celine Dion,
0: one. I should know this, is Celine Dion perform? No,
1: no, she's at the other camp. She's at the other <laughs> camp. Excuse me. <laughs> That's a stupid question. <laughs> this, this is a fun story. This is a fun story. I was present at Caesar's Palace a moment ago for a moment and a half, but literally New Year's Eve, I'll quick about this, it it's a great story. New Year's Eve, I say, what are we doing for New Year's Eve? Well, we have this guy, he's a customer, he's got his wife, uh, girlfriend, wife at the time. Her name is Celine. I wanted you to hear, they take me to a ballroom. I'm sitting where you are. She gets up on stage. It's like December 24th. She's going to appear. She's I got a song I want to sing for you. And she sings me this song from Titanic. First time I heard it, me to her. She said, What do you think? I said, I gave me goosebumps even again. I go, Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's going to work. The <laughs> true story. It was fascinating. Look, you get exposed to interesting things and places and people, but it's, if anything, it's business. You know, it just is business. So we all have in our minds the image of Terry Benedict, the. Star
0: in Ocean's Eleven, running his casino. <laughs> how how Hollywoodized is that persona of uh, Terry
1: Benedict? Look, I have his office. Remember The Office? That's my office. <laughs> <laughs> now that's cool. That's a cool. That's part. Really cool. <laughs> huh? He's got a studio. He's got a. He's got a Hollywood set. Office. Mean, the office is spectacular. Having said that, it's almost embarrassing to bring investors in. <laughs> All that being said, look, look, it's it's grandiose with 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 a couple of exceptions. I mean, there are moments. You wake up and you pinch yourself and go, Well, I'm standing on the 50 yard line and there's Tom Brady. I'm doing, something. you always get involved in something that is interesting and compelling. But then there's days where, you know, we've lost a lot of people to COVID and I make the call to the family. And so, you know, it's a 360, I can assure
0: you. That movie is talks a lot about security, and without t- saying anything, obviously, <laughs> you can't talk about, but that office, one of the things that I remember in my mind is all the screens he had in the office to watch everything going on. Okay. Fair to say that everywhere we go inside of one of these properties, we're being watched?
1: Not everywhere. <laughs> no. Not <yet. laughs> there might be one or two places you go. No, but there's about, in this building alone, there's probably 8,000 cameras. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, the bottom line, yeah, it's important for safety, for security. Obviously, games have requirements and whatnot but then we of those 8,000 can half of them are literally just on the facility and everything else just for general public safety and for your safety
0: right so you're on a what you've deemed an asset light strategy uh for MGM right now you did two big real estate deals in the past year and a half uh one with Blackstone back in January of 2020 and another one that you just did with VC partners back in August? I guess it was yeah, July. Just, August yeah, BC, July. Talk about that asset light strategy and sort of converting MGM from being a property owner to being a property operator.
1: So these are massively intense capital projects. The building you're in to recreate it cost nine point four billion a decade ago, which you're in this complex here. So you know it's a twelve billion dollar complex today. We have t- we had way too much money tied up into core real estate. And the opportunity to unlock that value, we just did this deal. We just took over the full operating company. We had JV'd with Dubai World here at Infinity World. We just took over the full operations and sold the full real estate. We got 18 and a half times EBITDA flow on, on $200 million for the rent for the real estate. So the idea is simply to unlock that value, put it into growth vehicles, things like digital and other places we'd want to go and do what we do best, which is operate. The difference is though, we're triple net lease. And so if I don't like the condition of the carpet, I don't have to talk to an owner. I am the owner of that carpet. I say replace it. So we capitalize into our own stuff. Now, if I want to add a wing, I could do it, but arguably I'd go find somebody else's money to do that. But the asset itself and the, and the maintenance of it, because we've all walked into XYZ brand hotel and you go, Well, i put putting money here in a while. Well, it's because the only doesn't want to and the, you know, and so we're not in that mode. We we capitalize our own projects, we put our own money into to maintenance. In fact, some of our leases have requirements to spend a, a certain amount of money to keep the asset fresh and new, because it's just critical to our business. But once we unlock that, once the two transactions close that you're talking about, we're sitting on 11 billion in cash. Right. And so the, the high-class problem we're going to have or do have, is, where are we going to do with all the money? There's only so many places and at such speed and velocity we can expose ourselves. And The gaming, gaming industry is a highly regulated, tight business. And so, where else can we go? What else should we be doing? How do we stay true to our shareholders? And we're a gaming—you know—they're buying a gaming company; they're not buying a movie company or something else. That's the reason we did it, which really just unlocked the value because the valuations have been crazy. And with that transition
0: from being, if you will, asset heavy to being asset light, who do you view as your competition now? Because I mean, as I think about that, moving from asset heavy to asset light is what all the big hospitality chains—Hilton, Hyatt, Marriott—all did. Do you view them as the competition? Do you view those other people that I mentioned a moment ago as the competition? Or do you view the digital world and online betting really as the real, quote-unquote, opportunity and competitive set going forward?
1: I don't know that we view hospitality as the competition. I mean, what we do is pretty unique at scale. Having said that, you could have this meeting anywhere in the world. The fact that we're here and and core reason people come to Las Vegas, we get 15% on average, additional attendance in every group we have, on average, because it's Las Vegas. Because at 5 o'clock, there's something to do. It's yeah. just that, it is just that simple. And so, and oh, by the way, we've kind of figured out how to do some of the stuff uh, and at scale. All that being said, so the convention market's important to us. And yeah, we compete with the Marriott's and the Gaylord's, et cetera. Food and beverage, we own 458 of our own restaurants. Other than Darden, we're the largest independent restaurant company in the world. We're number two. Take the chains out. We're number yeah. two. We sold nine main tickets. We're number three. So we have competitors everywhere we go, but on a more broad scale, our core business is gaming. It's the impetus of what we should focus our economics on and how we should drive our capital and our returns. And so we do have to think about how we stretch that digital. So now I'm, now I'm competing with UK based companies because digital is a global gaming front and global gaming opportunity, uh, which is encouraging because there is opportunity there. So it comes from all sorts. Look, I, th- I think the local competitor here, at one spectrum is Caesars, but if you talk about that high end I talked about, it's win of note. Yeah. So they're all over for different reasons. Generally, other than our core gaming, I like to part like for example in entertainment, Live Nation and AEG co-promote some of those talent acts I've talked about. So we take care of the resident shows, they take care of the touring shows. So this is this is co-relationship that that bonds us together for other things. Does having the gambling component somewhat insulate you from the
0: rest of the entertainment world? Because as I I think about you talk about the competitive landscape, I think about, well, Netflix and Disney and Comcast and the fierce competition that goes on there in the media space. But they're all on the exact same playing field, whereas you have your core business, which you do need a license for.
1: Right, we're privileged. You know, we're trying to build a casino in Japan. There's probably four or five competitors in the world at scale who can do what we can do. So think about any industry, suddenly you're down to four or five competitors. Yeah. If you think about what we can do in entertainment, simple example, because of gaming, I can, I, you want, you know, they're offering you a quarter of a man a night. I'll offer you 400,000 a night because I can't. It's just, it's just that simple. The math enables us to do that. And so we get the reason we the entertainment capital of the world is because of game, because we can do exactly what I just said. Don't like that. <laughs> yeah. But, the, but that's how it works. And so we've built enough scale here to be able to command, if you will, the reason boxing is here at scale is, we can afford to buy, God forbid, $10,000, those seats in the championship box Max. They're 10 grand. By the way, I buy all of them. I mean, the company for the, for our customers. They're, they're not being sold for retail, generally speaking. Right. We're buying them. Right. So the, 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 fight deal is, I want a $10 million gate. How much of it are you going to buy? And I said, I'm going to buy three and a half million dollars. Not a whole lot of other places in the world can someone just say, I'm going to buy three and a half million dollars with the fight tickets. We buy them because of the obvious. And so it does give us a competitive advantage. But there's only so many places you can go and do what I talked about. Right. So I
0: saw the microphone come out here, and I'm watching the clock, and we have about five more minutes. And I could keep talking to Bill all day, but I want to make sure that if anyone has any questions, they can ask them as well. Is that right? No, we're not doing that. So great, <laughs> I get to keep going. That's perfect. So you got you. I got I got one other question for you then, Bill, which is this. So when I landed, I saw a bunch of really nice planes out there. I think you own seven of them. What's it take for someone to have one of your planes come to pick them up?
1: Well, it depends on who you are, <laughs> but it, it generally starts at about what I call a quarter of a million dollar customer. And all that what that means is in any given trip you'll expose two hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars. It doesn't mean you win or lose. It's irrelevant. Eventually you lose. <laughs> I, you all bankers. Any, anyone who's going uh, out to gamble today, remember what the CEO of MGM just told you. Eventually you will lose. He will <laughs> always lose for entertainment. But it's in that range, and it goes up. You know, if you want me to come get you in Hong Kong in our best plane, it's going to be more. <laughs> yeah. But but generally, that's that's the rule of thumb.
0: And is there anything else that to those of us who are lay people in this that goes on behind the scenes that you could tell us about that's just sort of one of those things that you really... I mean, I think everyone here has this image that the high rollers have incredible rooms. They have concierge services for anything they want. We've all watched, you know, from uh, the bachelor party, <laughs> being in that huge room and what went on in that room. But... Is there, is there anything that's sort of a side to all of the customer service? I think mean, this is really yeah. more to it. What is it that your customers
1: need or want that you all excel at? Well, let me turn the question completely on its head for a second. At Bellagio, one of the most successful casinos in the world, 70% of our revenue is non-gaming. So despite gaming is a key engine of our revenue, now about 50% of our so hospitality, food and beverage, entertainment, retail, all of those components coming together make a place like ari a place like Bel- same same exact math here by the way make these places tick yeah we will tonight's specific win loss odds will be determined by 10 customers but in the aggregate and in the macro we are in the hospitality business for real we're in the entertainment we're in the retail food and beverage business for real and we have to treat it that way this isn't a small casino where everything else doesn't matter all these businesses matter and so it, it, despite all the things we're talking about We have to be sincere and and positioned well in all of those businesses to succeed or it doesn't succeed. I guess I would reference back to the unique nature of people who come to Las Vegas. They come from everywhere and all types of folks. Some come for just the action itself. And there's 25% of our customers never make a bet. Just never make a bet. And that's fine cool too. and, And the younger demographic, more millennials are here to have a good time. And if they happen upon a slot machine or a table, that's fine. But that's not their core purpose to come. We've gone from, as an industry, and I go way back on this, but if I go back 20 years, we survey people's visitation, and why do you come? 20 years ago, 75% of people, I come to gamble. Today, that answer is under 10%. Now, they do. 75% of them gamble, but they don't come to gamble. They come to vacation. They come to have a great time. They come for a conference. They come for a reunion. They come for now a sporting event. They don't come to gamble. That's not their mindset. They come to do all of those things, where 20 years ago, I'm coming to gamble. And so it's, you know, it's opened up the world's market to everything and anything. And so we've been fortunate. We've been amazingly fortunate for it. And hopefully we'll continue to do the same. It's just fascinating to think that you have to do
0: all those other things for 30% of your revenue and then 70% comes from the actual gambling activity, but it's all those other things that feed the 70%. No, the other way around, the other
1: way around. 70% are non-gaming, 30% of gaming, revenues. So hotel, food and beverage, entertainment. Is retail, 70. Is 70. I misunderstood. I yeah. misunderstood. Other way around. Other way around. Other way around.
0: Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, I will say this, Bill, the stock of MGM has doubled since you've taken over as CEO.
1: Pretty low when I started, but thank you. (laughs) I'll take some credit, but not all of it. Yeah. Well,
0: I, I will say your people first attitude from the day that you took the job to today, to all of us who have people who work with us and putting the people who make all of our companies what they are, you putting people first is really emblematic of your leadership style. It's a real honor to have you spend the time to talk to all of us today, and we're all thrilled to be at your resort and be here at this conference. So
1: thank you very much. Thank you very much, and again, thank all of you. you.